everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanides, and welcoming back a, a special guest. I don't know how to I don't know how to label you, Josh, because you've you, you you you've missed a few episodes. But we are. I'm glad to welcome back Josh, my co-host. I always have more fun being able to, able to talk with someone else. And so, uh, Josh, welcome back. You know, because I like you, Phil, I'm not going to go MJF on you. I'm going to let you live to see another podcast. But I am your co-host. I'm not a special guest. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm the guts of this show. Let's be I'm, I'm like Gordon Soley. I'm like Joe Rogan. I'm why people t- tune in. No, um, I appreciate you allowing me back on your show, Phil. Um, you know, it's, sometimes it can be tough with all of our duties. Uh, yep. But uh, thanks a lot. And I'm happy to talk about this show. This is a really good one. Yeah, this is a really, really momentous, noteworthy show, and uh, there is a, listeners, there is a lot to get to in this, so we're going to jump in, uh, but in, for those that don't know, I want to welcome our listeners. Inside the Hexagon is about walking through the major events, fighters, and milestones of Strike Force, which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013, and on the episode today, we're going to be discussing Strike Force Fedor versus Henderson, which took place on July 30th, 2011 at the Sears Center outside Chicago, Illinois. On the card, we would see Tarek Safadine take on Scott Hands of Steel Smith. Tim Kennedy battle Robbie Lawler. Tyron Woodley take a big step up in competition against Paul Semtex Daly. Marluz Kunin put her women's bantamweight title on the line against Misha Tate. And in the main event, Dan Henderson would get a shot against the heavyweight goat, Fedor Emelianenko. Real quickly, Phil, I don't know if you noticed at the beginning. Well, you obviously noticed because they did it throughout the show. But they had this poll. And at the beginning, they said, you know, will Fedor Emelianenko retire if he loses? And I'm not going to give away any spoilers. Two of my favorites did fight on this card. It was a bit of a tough night. But I just want to say, what a hilarious poll. Because Fedor, (laughs) 10 years later, is still fighting. So... Um, I just thought it was a little bit interesting that that was one of the questions being asked. Uh, not only that, I'd be a little bit offended if I was like Fedor or, or his team. It's like, I mean, I know you're not saying when he loses, will he retire? But, and, and to be fair, as which we'll get to, Fedor had been contemplating retirement around the side, but, or around this time, but I'd kind of be like, what's up, dude? Like, you don't even, <laughs> however you say that in Russian, uh, I, I would have been, yeah, I wouldn't have been too happy with that. But anyways. You should have mentioned that Inside the Hexagon is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network, so you can check out uh, the other shows on the network at evergreenpodcast.com. Now, the previous event that we covered was Strikeforce Overeem versus Verdun, which saw several more heavyweight Grand Prix bouts, though none really stood out as a great fight. Chad Griggs and Daniel Cormier advanced as alternates, while Josh Barnett submitted Brett Rogers to move on to the next next round. And in the main event, Alistair Overeem took a decision win over Fabricio Verdun in the which I mean just the epitome of a lackluster fight. Uh, don't go out of your way to watch that. I believe that I was probably more entertaining in the last thirty seconds than that entire fight was. It was pretty bad. Can I uh, say something, Phil? The sure. Real, the real reason I took a three week hiatus. Yeah, was you saw that one coming. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I think I'm busy that day. No, yeah. uh, I remember that fight clearly, and I just remember being so pissed off because. I'm not going to rehash it, but you already did. But it was such a good fight on paper. And then Alistair refused to go to the ground with, with Verdum. And it was just a blah, nothing fight. And yeah. I'm glad I missed it, quite frankly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I you know, I don't know who, who was more to blame. I mean, neither fighter would give in terms of their strategy. And it just produced just such, you know, styles make fights. And in this case, this, the styles made the non-fight. 
because neither guy would step out of his, you know, his area of, of expertise. And yeah, it was just, I'd never seen the fight before and I was really not happy afterwards, but anyways, but I was really happy about the lone non-heavyweight battle on the main card, which saw Jorge Masvidal beat up and cut up KJ Nunes in a very gritty, very bloody three round affair that definitely took home uh, fight of the night. It's really the one fight on there that's really worth watching. All right, but let's bring us back to Fedor versus Henderson. After Fedor's loss to Bigfoot Silva, he had seriously contemplated retirement. Uh, but after some time off and after you know talking with his his priest, his father, uh, he decided that he, he was going to, it was God's will for him to con- continue on. And in April of 2011, it was reported that Strikeforce was in negotiations with both Fedor and Dan Henderson in what would be the last fight on the Russians deal with the promotion. As time went on, there were a lot of ups and downs with the negotiations. You don't really hear that too much with Strike Force. Um, we didn't really hear a whole lot of, oh, this guy wouldn't didn't want to fight, or this guy would fight, or you know they wanted more money. Like you just you didn't hear a lot of that. Uh, but but this was one of the times where there there that did take place, and and money, weight class, these were issues that were needed to be overcome in order to make this fight. And supposedly Fedor's team wanted there to be a weight limit on the fight so that he would be motivated to stay in shape. Meanwhile, Hendo was willing to take the fight at any weight, and they ended up agreeing to just basically make it a heavyweight fight. I don't think that there was actually a weight limit on it. Uh, in addition, there were strong rumors that this this card would actually be broadcasted on pay-per-view rather than Showtime, but it did end up being shown on Showtime. Uh, eventually, even Lorenzo Fertitta himself, who we would see throughout the years at times when, when, he owned, uh, when he was one of the owners of the UFC, he would step in when guys had an issue with Dana White. And that was definitely the situation with uh, Henderson having kind of a hot and cold relationship with Dana. And then as well, uh, Fedor, you know, obviously not not on good terms with Dana's uh, Dana and his team. So uh, Lorenzo Fertitta was brought in to help and, and they were able to bring things to a suitable conclusion at the end of May. And then according to an article from Josh Gross of ESPN, multiple, quote, multiple sources confirmed that a million acres, $1.5 million purse combined with Henderson's $800,000 payday ensured the date or the event was a money loser. But in the end, pay-per-view was eschewed for a slot on Showtime, which has the option of renewing its television rights deal with the Strikeforce brand early next year. So lots going on behind the scenes uh, to make this fight happen. But, you know, looking back now with this fight taking place under the Zufa banner, it was pretty likely that this was going to be the final Strikeforce fight for, for uh, excuse me, final Strikeforce fight for Fedor, regardless of the outcome. I mean, as we just mentioned, Fedor's team and Dana White just, just couldn't work together. So this was likely going to be it for the last Emperor in Strikeforce win or lose. On top of that, while Fedor's fights had drawn better than other recent Strikeforce events, it, so let's be honest. I mean, it's not like he was setting the world on fire, drawing, you know, 15,000, 16,000 people. Uh, you know, they had lost the CBS deal because of the brawl in Nashville. And so now they were fighting exclusively on a premium, you know, uh, premium pay-per-view channel in, in Showtime and or premium cable channel in Showtime. And, you know, they're drawing eight, nine, 10, 11,000 people, which, you know, we were a far cry from the days of, you know, Frank and, and Kung Lee drawing 15, 16 and Gilbert and, and Josh Thompson drawing, you know, around those numbers. And obviously the 18,000 that they, they drew at the first event. I it just, this was not, you know, they, the Fedor just had not been the big, uh, cash cow that I think they had expected him to be. And perhaps if he had continued to be able to compete on CBS and they could have continued to grow their audience there. I mean, really we've talked about this some, but um, that was really the end for strike force as a viable, 
you know, potential alternative to the UFC. I mean, once they lost that CBS deal, I, I just, I think that was it. And, and yeah, and that was it. And then we also had the, the big loss of Nick Diaz, who was, had been the most consistent star for Strikeforce in recent year, years. He had relinquished the welterweight championship, had moved over to the UFC. Uh, he was supposed to take on George St. Pierre, which didn't end up happening uh, immediately. Actually ended up taking on BJ Penn and then eventually did take on St. Pierre and lost. Uh, but this was a huge deal. I, I mean, he had Diaz had headlined multiple cards. He delivered a, memor- a, a memorable performance every single time out. He always, you know, just yeah, always was a great fighter. And we've covered his fights on this podcast. I'd never, I'd seen some, but not all of his fights. And, and I just, I, it really reinforced to me just how important the Stockton native was to strike force. And he really left a big hole when he vacated his, his position at the top of the welterweight uh, division. I mean, truth be told, he'd kind of, he'd turned back Paul Daly, he'd turned back Cyborg, he'd turned back KJ Noons. Like he had, he had turned back all these these guys, and yeah, Tyron Woodley could have been a, a challenge for him, uh, being such a strong wrestler and a guy who did have heavy hands. But I think at this point, Tyron Woodley was probably not ready for him, and so yeah, there there just there weren't a lot of real strong viable contenders at that point. It made a lot more sense for him to go over to the UFC. So. Uh, but of course, this did open up an opportunity, and we had four welterweights competing on this card: Scott Smith, Trek Safadine, Paul Daly, and Tyron Woodley. So, you know, would we see one of them really step up and and really take advantage of the opportunity uh, that was that was in front of them? I mean, th- th- this was a, a big a big chance for one of them, or more more than one of them, to really stand out. We should mention that as with Overeem versus Verdun, there were a lot of fighters scheduled for this card that didn't end up competing. So let's quickly run through some of them. Uh, Fejal Cavalcante and Ovin St. Pro were scheduled to fight, but that was later scrapped. Cyborg Santos and Tarek Safadine were supposed to fight. However, Safadine was pulled from the bout and paired with Scott Smith. Uh, he was replaced by Paul Daly, and then Cyborg was forced out with a shoulder inju- injury. I would mention, like to mention, I would have loved to seen Paul Daly versus Cyborg Santos. I mean, two guys that just go for it on the feet. I would have loved to have seen that fight, but unfortunately, he got injured, and the undefeated Tyron Woodley stepped in. Uh, so that was a that was going to be a big deal uh, again, a big opportunity for Tyron Woodley, as we've discussed. Hodger Gracie and King Mo Lawal were supposed to lock horns as well. However, that bout was rescheduled for the Barnett Her- versus Heratonov card that was coming up after Gracie suffered a training injury. And then we were actually supposed to see the uh, the main. Actually, I don't know if it would have been on the main card, but Ronda Rousey and Sarah D'Elia, uh, Sarah Dialelio were originally scheduled to fight on this card. But their bout was later moved to Strike Force Challengers Gurgel versus Duarte. Uh, that you got to mention Sarah D'Alelio. She was supposed to fight uh, Gina, uh, returning Gina Carano on the last card, and then she's supposed to fight Ronda Rousey on this card. Who you know Ronda Rousey was not who she would become, in, in you know in in Strike Force and later the UFC at this point, as far as name recognition or even as a fighter. But you know, kind of a Unfortunate for D'Alelio, supposed to fight two of the most memorable female fighters in MMA history and got to fight neither one of them. And then finally, Lyle Beerbaum was originally scheduled to face Jay-Z Cavalcante, but he was replaced by Bobby Green after suffering a rib injury in training. Uh, there are two Strikeforce Challengers events to cover here. Well, again, we'll quickly go through those. Strikeforce Challengers Fodor versus Terry took place on June 24, 2011 at the Showwear Center in Kent, Washington, in front of 1,901 fans. Some notable fights on this card. Uh, undefeated at 6-0 and coming in, Derek Brunson made his Strikeforce debut, taking a unanimous decision win over Jeremy Hamilton. We also saw Julia Budd take a decision over Jermaine DeRandamy. 
as well as Lorenz Larkin get a decision win over the recently retired Jean Volante. Matt Ricehouse, Rice excuse me, decisioned Ryan Couture. And then in the main event, Karis Fodor, uh, sorry, Karis Fodor got the judge's nod over James Terry. All right, and then we got Strikeforce Challengers Volker versus Bowling 3, which took place on July 22nd, 2011 at the Palms Casino Resort in Las Vegas, Nevada. As with Photo versus Terry, there was a good amount of there were a good amount of notable names on this card. Anthony Smith, currently a a challenger in the UFC, he was 14 and 7 at the time he made his Strikeforce debut, knocking out Ben Lagman in the second round. Former Strikeforce Women's Bantamweight champ Sarah Kaufman took a decision win over recent title challenger Liz Carmuch, which set which set up Kaufman to get a uh, a title shot. Looked like she'd get a title shot at the winner of the Marlis Kunin uh, Misha Tate fight. Of Vincent Pro submitted Joe Kaysen, and then in the main event, a trilogy of fights was completed with Bobby Volker TKOing Roger Bowling, taking that series two to one. You know, Phil. Um, someday when we're looking for ideas of uh, you know specialty shows, you know we should take a look at some of the fighters on on this undercard. I mean, the Roger Bowling Bobby Volker sort of trilogy. I mean, that would be interesting to look at. Those guys were were both like really scrappy and they had some good fights. I don't remember all three, but I know they had some good, um, some good fights that were not Josh Thompson and, uh, um, um, Gilbert Melendez, Gilbert Melendez level, but you know, kind of along the same lines, but you know, that, that's an incredible undercard. I mean, Anthony Smith is, yeah, he's almost the UFC light heavyweight champion, right? I mean, he's, he had a shot, but he's talked about, maybe it's, you know, maybe he's going to win it someday, you know? So, this is quite the undercard here. Yeah, I mean, which, if, Glover, if, if Glover if Glover Teixeira can win the belt, then you know, <laughs> I mean, and that, I don't mean that disrespectfully, but just the fact that I, I man, I watched, I loved that fight. By the way, just to see a forty year old dude go out and you know get after so much adversity to. Yeah, it really shows you that you know you put your mind to it, and you put the work, and you can really do it. So, uh, but yeah, I, I I know that the first fight between Volker and Bowling ended uh, controversially with, I think Bowling getting he was winning the fight, and then he took a, a thumb to the eye or something, and so they had to stop the fight. Um, and I believe Bowling got the win, and then the second fight Volker won more decisively, and then this third fight, I think there might have been some controversy in this one as well, but. Volker, Volker did get the win. Both guys would go on to the UFC. Uh, Bowling had a, an unfortunate run there. Uh, I think Volker got um, uh, got got a, got some wins there. But yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that, we've never really gone into the Challengers um, series too much, and there are some some of the full events are available on Fight Pass. So maybe at some point we'll we'll go through and you know do an episode on Challengers and. And yeah, maybe we'll do that at some point. But. The, the in your house episodes. Yeah, the there you go. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, this does bring us to uh, to the event itself. Strike Force Fader versus Henderson again took place on July 30th, 2011 at the Sears Center outside Chicago, Illinois. The event drew 571,000 viewers on Showtime as well as 8,311 to the arena for a live gate of $638,470. And the $638,470. On the, the commentary call was Gus Johnson, Frank Shamrock, and Mauro Ronaldo once again. But it is worth noting this was the last Strike Force card for Johnson as he would be replaced by Pat Militich going forward. Two things. One, Phil, did you hear the CM Punk chants? No. I, I heard are you serious? Are I you serious? I, you know, I, <laughs> I'm like, whenever you serious? a large crowd gathers in Chicago, yeah. <laughs> I hear CM Punk chants. Um, no, but and then Marwanello and his bald head. Mm. I don't know what was going on with him, but that struck me as 
little stone cold looking Portmore in Allo. Um, you, you know, man, he would go back and forth between like Mafia Don, and then he would like shave <laughs> his head, and then it would be spiky and kind of more youthful, and then he'd shave it. I, I you know, I we could speculate as to why he would do that, but it, it was you know, you always got a different look with it's him. It's kind you know? of it's kind of badass though. I mean, that job is such an aesthetic job. He's like, <laughs> he I, just I, didn't I, care. <laughs> he's like, I'm good. I don't care. I'm going to do what I want. It's kind of impressive. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, anyways, we're, it was, it was interesting to see him again with a bald head, but at least, he, at uh, least he wasn't wearing braces at 45 years. Yeah, old. Yeah. You know? Well, Hey, you got to give it to Frank for having, <laughs> the, having the guts to, you know, do that, knowing that he was going to be on camera and wanting to get his, you know, his teeth fixed. Like I, I don't blame have, him for that. And have they he, been hey, removed? I mean, I, I feel like he always had them. Have they been removed yet? Just oh yeah. No, <laughs> dude, you should look him up. Frank's got a great smile now. Seriously. Oh, okay, so you All should, right. you should look him up. <laughs> All right, let's get to the undercard. Uh, at a heavyweight bout, Gabriel Salinas Jones defeated Brian Humes via submission, come by way of Darce Choke at 119 to the third round. Uh, Tyler Stinson in a welterweight bout defeated Eduardo P- Pamplona via KO, come by way of punch at 15 seconds of the first round. That would earn Stinson, by the way, a, a main card fight, I believe, in his next stri- strike force bout. And Pamplona was no joke. I'm, I'm pretty sure he fought, was supposed to fight on the Shine Fights card. Um, but I, I believe I, I helped do PR for an event that he was on, if I remember correctly. But he was no he was no joke. Uh, at 135 pounds in a female fight, Alexis Davis defeated Julie Kedzie uh, via unanimous decision. And then at 185 pounds, Derek Brunson was back. This was a quick turnaround. He defeated Lumumba Sayers via submission, come by way of rear naked choke at 433 of the first round. And then the aforementioned bout between Jay-Z Cavalcante and Bobby Green ended in a split decision victory for Cavalcante at 155 pounds. All right, this brings us to the main card, 170 pounds, Tarek Safadine versus Scott Smith. Safadine, 24 years old, a native of Brussels, Came, which is, in case you didn't know, that is where the muscles from Brussels, Jean-Claude Van Damme, also hails from. Uh, Tarek was 10-3 and three coming in. He was 3-2 and two in his last five, five fights. And as a member of Team Quest, he'd been training with Dan Henderson in advance of, of a bout for both of them. They say that that is one of the best ways to prep for a fight is to be training with other guys in your camp that are fighting at, uh, on the same card or cards around the same time because you can cut weight together. Although I, Dan Henderson was clearly... <laughs> not going to be cutting weight, uh, but I'm sure that that helped uh, Safadine. He had lost to Tyron Woodley in his last fight, but he did have wins over quality fighters like Brock Larson, Nate Moore, and James Terry. Smith, for his part, was 18-8-1. He had lost three of his last four going down to defeat to Nick Diaz, Kung Lee, and Paul Daly. This would be his second fight at 170 pounds, and he was hoping for a better return on his investment in this one. Uh, but the first round, pretty much all Safadine. He looked really good, landed some nice shots, including a right high kick, uh, this faint high kick that was pretty cool. Um, and Smith was cut, looking just out of sorts. Little head movement, which Frank Shamrock pointed out. Easy 10-9 round for Turek to open things up. You know, I just want to note while you're running down Scott Smith that you listed a who's who of MMA fighters. I mean, come on. That is he true. Lost, he lost I, to Nick which you're an apo- Okay, look, you're an apologist for him, obviously. <laughs> but, I, I, and that, but I will say, that did come to mind when I was saying, I was like, you know, he, he had wins over Terry Martin, and then, you know, he had the really nice scrap with, um, oh, God, now I'm blank, blanking on his name. But, uh, he you know, he had a couple really, really big, big wins, you know, in Strikeforce, but they were guys that were more, you know, his level. They, they, they were beatable guys. And then when he took that big step up in competition, and, yes, he, of course, got the miracle in San Jose win over Kung Lee, but as, we've, as we covered – 
he was getting the crap kicked out of him for, you know, 95% of the fight. And then, you know, he's, yeah, he, so he's just, look, there's in boxing and MMA and fighting, there are guys that you can fight to a certain level and then you take a step up and you're not that level. You're just not an elite guy. And that's Scott Smith, as much as I love him and for his heart and, and, and his, you know, and he showed it in this fight as well. He just wasn't an elite level fighter. He had no head movement. You know, he wasn't a ground guy. He just, he, if he caught you, you could put your lights out and he had all the guts of, you know, more guts than anybody, but yeah, he just, you know, but, but to your point, yes, he was losing against top tier guys, but that's cause he just wasn't top tier. You know, we're coming up on the anniversary of the miracle of San Jose. You know? <laughs> oh my God. We should do a special revisit. Are you going to light a candle in your house for, for Christmas? For, <laughs> Maybe for like a, a multi-part series that looks at oh it round God. by oh round. Yeah. <laughs> No. Um, um, okay, so I just want to say that that I like this round, um, even though Safadine won. You know, Scott Smith was pushing the action, and much like uh, we'll talk about with Fedor later, Scott Smith is not the GOAT, but he always fought. I mean, he always came to fight. He never was strategic. He never overthought things. He was not Tim Kennedy, like we're going to see later, you know, winning strategically. He was out there to fight, and uh, I thought he had a decent round. Um, it would go downhill, but, but you know, he did okay. He was there to win. Um, well, he was know, there I, to fight. I, I got to respect Scott Smith for being somebody who always comes forward. Um, and, you know, he got hit a couple times here, and, you know, he, he, looks, he, he survived it. So. You know, it's funny, like we said this about Kung Lee during his run with Strikeforce that he was like 10 years too late. Like he, he if he had or uh, or 10 years. No, no, no. I'm sorry. 10 years too early that, you know, if he had he didn't start until he was in his, you know, what, mid to late 30s. And it didn't start in MMA, at least until his mid to late 30s. He always already had so many miles on his body. I mean, at the end of his career, he was nine and three. He only had 12 MMA fights. Uh, you know, he, he if he had if MMA had come or come along. 10 years earlier, or he'd come along 10 years later, he could have been, you know, one of the all time greats. He could have been, you know, he was, he was a great fighter, but how much better would he have been if he had started training MMA when he was even younger? Scott Smith to me is like the opposite. He was really one dimensional in a lot of ways. And, and so imagine if he'd been competing in the UFC in the, you know, if they, you know, when they had weight classes, at least, what if he'd been competing then? Like he, he, I think he could have done better. I think the sport had already passed him by, by the time he was, you know, cause he, and I mean, he would come, Frank Shamrock said, like, he told me he's going to use head movement. And it's like, well, you didn't like, and you got beat up before it, you know? So I, I just like he, he had the ability to really evolve as a fighter. And, and, and that's why he stayed where he was basically. So the great Scott Smith, but go ahead, Phil, let's move on. to round Yeah, two. we'll move on. All right. <laughs> So Safadine hurt Smith early on with a really nice combo of punches and knees in the second round. Smith, I mean, he's just, he was beaten down. His back was against the cage. He was hardly moving. Again, no head movement, offering almost nothing. At one point, Tarek grabbed the back of Smith's head in kind of like a half movie tie plum and threw five elbows in a row to Smith's head, and, and Hansa still did nothing to really stop the assault. He finally kind of pushed him off at the end, end there. But uh, you always had to remember that Smith, with all the heart and everything, was what he was capable of in terms of comebacks. But I mean, he was just getting his, you know, proverbial teeth knocked down his throat. And I, I kind of felt bad for him to be honest. I mean, he, he did have a nice flurry towards the end of the, the middle round, but that was really it for him. 10, nine, maybe even 10, eight for, for Safadine. It's just not a good round for Scott Smith at all. 
Yeah, I have to admit, I, I think whatever happened in that first round maybe took the wind out of him. And he went from a guy who was coming forward trying to land his haymakers to a guy trying to get a paycheck, just trying to survive. He, he didn't have that same sort of like coming at you approach. He was still moving forward. It was just not with a lot of bad intentions. And uh, he looked like a guy that was just there to kind of be another victim for like the rising territory you know, Safadine. Uh, yeah. So I admit this was not a good round um, at all for Scott Smith. Yeah. And it's not like Safadine was this, you know, rising like world beater, beater star, like undefeated guy. I mean, he was three and two in his last five fights. He wasn't a guy that was seen as, Oh, he's going to be, you know, a future champ. Although spoiler alert, he did end up being a, a future champ, but yeah, it, I mean the, the commentator said that at one point he's like, it looked like a sparring session and I hadn't realized it, but I'd kind of been thinking that when they said that it was like, it did like like Safadine was switching stances, trying out new strikes. It looked like like throwing different combos and Smith just offered very little. And in the third round that continued more crisp striking um, from Safadine, he was just picking apart Scott Smith. And as Morrow put it, he's just accurate with surgical precision, pretty much throwing whatever strikes he wanted, piecing together combos scoring at will. And Smith did, you know, he realized, uh, you know, that he kind of seemed to wake up and realize like, all right, this is, I, I need to do something. And he tried a few things, a bunch of high kicks, a Superman punch. But by that point, Safadine was kind of on his horse, just keeping himself out of trouble and avoiding situations. And nothing really came close to landing another 10 round round for Sa 10, nine round for Safadine who fought just a really smart fight. And in the end, Safadine defeated Scott Smith via unanimous decision. There was really no, no question about it. Yeah, Safadine looked good. This was definitely a fight for him that made people say, wait, this, this guy's got some skills. Maybe we should elevate him in, in competition. And what was cool about Safadine, we would see this later in Strike Force, was he would set up his punches with his kicks. And we saw that with Scott Smith. You had to be just as concerned about him setting up a combination with his hands as with his legs and his feet. So uh, he, he's a unique fighter, Safadine. I, I haven't seen a lot of guys who, who fight like him. He reminded me a little bit of Conor McGregor without the, you know, hyper-aggression, testosterone, you know, like just I hate the world attitude. Just like technically he reminded me of of a guy yeah, like that. Kind of like an early early McGregor with just being really, really accurate with his strikes, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. I could see that. Yeah, that makes sense. But – he, he looked great in this fight. He was now four and one in strike force had to be looked at as an option for well, for a welterweight title shot in the future. But, you know, obviously not so much for hands of steel, regardless, uh, both these guys would be back in early 2012 in strike force. All right. But this brings us to our next bout uh, at 170 pounds, Tyron Woodley versus Paul Daly. Woodley was undefeated at eight. No coming in clearly a star on the rise. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, he had taken a decision win over Trek Safadine in his last bout. And this was a big opportunity for T Wood. This was, you know, a chance to really cement himself as a title contender for the now vacant belt. Uh, Daly was 27, 10 and two coming in. He'd been finished by Nick Diaz three months prior to this before that he'd been on a four fight win streak. Uh, so with, you know, a strong showing against Diaz where he had Diaz in trouble, uh, if he could get a big win here over Tyron Woodley, he would position himself for another title shot. Uh, if, you know, if he had that type of performance, but getting into the fight itself an early cup shot from Daly to Woodley, clearly inadvertent slowed at the beginning of the fight. However, that was the most action we saw in the opening frame. Woodley grinded on Daly, keeping his striking at bay with lots of clinching, pretty boring, uh, 10, nine Woodley, but he wasn't going to gain many fans with that type of performance. This was the worst Paul Daly to me. Uh, when he fights like this, I just hate him. 
he's just holding on and this wasn't much of a round and I mean, when I when I thought about this fight, initially I'm like, oh, that's going to be an awesome fight. Because I didn't remember it the first time around. And then I was like, oh my god, this is the worst Woodley, this is the worst Daily colliding here. Um, and we saw it in this round. Yeah, I didn't I didn't have much hope for this. So I said earlier I would have much rather seen Daly versus Santos. Uh, to me, like, with, with Daly, it's the same thing with Melvin Manhoff. Like, pretty much just match him up with fellow strikers. Just Just do that. Don't put him in with wrestlers. Because neither of them could stop a takedown. And so, and nobody was going to give them a chance to do anything on their feet for the most part. So just throw them in there and let them kill or be killed. You know, I, and this is what we saw here. Second round, more of the same. Woodley, after some booze, went for a takedown, uh, using the position to grind on Daly some more with two minutes left. Referee John McCarthy stood things up, and Daly was able to get in a little bit of offense toward the end of the round, but too little, too late. Another pretty boring 10 9 round for Woodley. Not really much to. Yeah, boring, boring round. Um, and Daly was doing what you just said, what he does when he's in there against somebody who he knows he's not better than. He just kind of fights defensively, and we all have to suffer because of it. Yeah, and really the highlight of the fight was at the end of the third round. Woodley was clearly playing to his strengths and to his opponent's weaknesses. Got another takedown early in the third round. Daly was able to stand eventually and sprawled from a couple more Woodley takedown attempts, but the Brit was able to, unable to really get anything going. Uh, things were back on the feet with a minute left, but Woodley wasn't going to give Daly any chance at hurting with strikes. Uh, so he he went for the, the, the takedown again. And then Daly went – I doubt he'd ever even heard of an omoplata. Huh. He went for an omoplata shoulder lock. And, I mean, was like the it popped the announcers, you know, to forgive the pro wrestling term. But they're like, what? And, I mean – I, I was as I'm watching this, I'm like, is this the equivalent of Aaron Rodgers like taking a handoff from Aaron Jones and like, you know, going for like a 65 yard run into uh. the end zone? Like it's just completely out of his element. Not what you know, not something that he's known for, uh, but just uh, pretty like pretty amazing. And I got a hats off to him for taking the the risk and going for that. But too little, too late. Uh, you know, final bell ring, rings. Lots of respect between the two of them. But just, yeah. I, w- Josh, what did you think when you saw him go for that 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 omoplata? I I had the same feeling that you did, except I didn't really think of the Aaron Rodgers analogy. It reminded me when Brock Lesnar went for the shooting star press at WrestleMania, thinking yeah. <laughs> he's not really going to do what the I can't believe this. Um, that was amazing. And Daly did it like he had done it before. Like, if you didn't know Paul yeah. Daly is a turtle yeah. on his back, you would think, like, damn, that's a good move. Yeah, um, yeah. He didn't really know how to finish it, but he no. did a great job getting there. Yeah, no, he just smoothly rolled right into it, got the, the arm in position. He just It's really hard to pull off. I mean, it's only, there's only been a handful of them in MMA history, and I can't even think of one right now. So, you know, pretty pretty cool. Uh, to see, but I, I, you know, really the highlight, and this is kind of just me being a, you know, the baby face, I guess, but uh, daily, you know, remember the last fight where we saw him getting just taken down repeatedly was the Josh Koshtek fight, which had a lot more bla- bad blood in it than this one. But, you know, and then he got up and punched Koshtek after the final bell and got himself banned from the UFC and he's never been back since. And this one, he, you know, he actually hugged. Woodley kissed him on top of the head, you know, kind of, you know, showed a lot of, lot of respect and, and not a great fight. I, I definitely absolutely skippable. And I very much wish it would have been cyborg um, in this one. And I would have liked, I would have rather seen a rematch between Trex Safadine and Paul Daly to be on, or I'm sorry. And, uh, and Tyron Woodley, to be honest with you, I would have liked to have seen this version of Trek take on 
you know, take on uh, Tyron Woodley. But instead, this is what we ended up with and just not really the most exciting fight by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I mean, both guys kind of fought not to lose, you know, and this is what happens. And, uh, you know, Paul Daly is such an enigma to me. I mean, I, I, I truly, I love, like, when he's on. He's so exciting to watch. Uh, a lot of guys can knock people out. There's something about the way he fights. It's just super exciting, uh, that X factor, I guess. But, God, when he's when he's bad, he is so bad. It's like, yeah. Entirely different fighter. You know? It's not about like to me. It's not about bad. Like in the sense that like Robbie Lawler, who we'll be just discussing in just a minute. You know, Daly just couldn't stop takedowns. Like that's just it. Like yeah, he was bad in that sense, but it, it's not like this was like a mental thing where it's like oh sometimes he's on, sometimes he's off. I mean, Daly was always going for the kill, but he just couldn't stop a takedown. Meanwhile, you have a guy like Robbie Lawler with all the, you know, and kind of similar to to Tyron Woodley. Actually, there's all the talent in the world but just kind of mental lapses and not fighting his fight and that sort of thing. So, yeah, but the crowd was not happy booze upon the decision, but somewhat drowned out by Woodley's mom, who I, I, I never got to speak with her directly, but I know that she's a very devout Christian and she was enthusiastically praising the Lord for her son's win, which harkens back to, you know, the whole, like, I want to give God glory for giving me the, the, the power to take my opponent's head off, you know, which always kind of crack, cracks me up. But Anyways. It reminded me of Marcus Alexander Bagwell's, you know, mother. Same, oh, same, Judy Bagwell. Same kind of storyline, yeah. Rest in peace, by the way. She just passed away within the last, uh, I think, oh. month, actually. So, rest in oh, peace. Oh, I'm sorry. You could take yeah. that out. No, that's, that's <laughs> no, too bad. It's fine. <laughs> uh, but both, uh, both Daly and Woodley would be back in strike force in early 2012. All right, this brings us to the aforementioned Robbie Lawler taking on Tim Kennedy. Kennedy was 13-3 and three coming in, 4-1 and one in his last five. The lone loss coming at the hands of Jacques Ray Souza in a battle for the then-vacant Strikeforce middleweight title. After his last win, a submission victory over Melvin Manhoff, Kennedy had respectfully said he wanted to fight Lawler and got his wish. Lawler, for his part, 18-7 and seven on a very uneven run. He, run. he had alternated wins and losses in his last six fights. Still, kind of as with Scott Smith, Lawler was always dangerous and all depended on which version of Robbie Lawler showed up. Both fighters, once the bell rang, looked pretty good early on. Lawler's takedown D was on point. He was looking really, really good. His Lawler's never, point was never takedown defense. He, he was a strong wrestler. He, he knew how to stop him. His thing was submission defense. And Kennedy was you know, a very good uh, submission fighter. He'd submitted Melvin Manov in his last bout. So, uh, you know, he was trying to avoid that. Clearly, Kennedy was able to corral the heavy-handed Lawler at one point, but Lawler was able to escape. Kennedy stayed with it, got a takedown towards the end of the round, 10-9 for uh, the All-American Soldier. By the way, it just tickles me that you compared Scott Smith to Robbie Lawler. You just you had to admit that they're both dangerous, killer oh MMA oh fighters. No, oh actually, God. that's a really good analogy because Robbie Lawler got better and became a legend, and Scott Smith plateaued if we're being honest you know but both yeah. those guys like they were kind of you know about the same kind of a guy for a couple of years in their career but i think robbie switched teams switched camps he had actually he, was, he actually yeah. switched teams before this fight um it was interesting because matt I, I did i don't know if you noticed matt hughes was actually in his corner but he had actually moved to arizona he had left the i think the hit squad i think was the name of it but he had left the legendary militage camp and actually switched over to where uh, CB Dalloway and like the Arizona guys had trained, um, and he he joined that that camp. Even though again Matt Hughes was still in his corner, but uh, to, to your point though, he was trying to switch things up for sure. Yeah, law, law, it's a difference. Lawler's like, hey, I'm gonna 
I got to do what I got to do to be a better fighter in this business. And you always got the feeling Scott Smith was hanging out on his couch. And whenever he got a call from Strike Force to fight, he's like, yep, I'll do it. You know, very different sort of approaches. But um, so in this fight, Kennedy to me was, I could tell right away that this was going to be kind of a boring fight because he was looking like he was trying to win an MMA contest and not go out there and fight Robbie Lawler. Now, of course, People who try to fight Robbie Lawler end up losing right. most of the time. So so I get that, right? But Kennedy was kind of reminding me of the things that have always bothered me. I loved him, Kennedy. He's a phenomenal person and athlete. But sometimes he just would overthink things in the fights. And um, I could sort of see that Tim Kennedy was kind of creeping out in this first round. Yeah, I, he very cerebral, um, very smart fight on his part. Uh, but uh, you know, we that that was his his game plan in the second round. Took a couple minutes for Kennedy to get a takedown, but he he in the process ate a pretty brutal uppercut from Lawler that cut him really badly on the nose, and he was bleeding like a stuck pig. I mean, it was messy. He was like you could see them like rubbing their arms in it on the mat, like it's pretty gross actually, but. Kennedy was able to to withstand that. He was really busy from the top, dropped a lot of punches, just grinding on Lawler. Another 10-9 round for him, just very strategic approach, and it was working. He was bleeding like Dusty Rhodes in 1985. Come on. I mean, that, that blood was, like, pouring down. Uh, I got to say, I didn't even see the punch the first time. It yeah, I, I didn't either. I th- in fact, the way I wrote it was a glancing blow because I, I didn't think it was really that good. And then on the replay yeah. after the round, man, he caught him. That was pretty nasty. How fast is Robbie Lawler? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, dude. He even some space. You know? And so, yeah, that kind of changed the whole, the whole pace. Um, even though Kennedy was winning, it definitely made K- Kennedy even more careful and cautious yeah. here. I think that's fair. I think that's a fair statement, you know. And then we saw the final round was somewhat different. We saw a lot of trading on the feet early on, but neither guy really stood out, which kind of surprised me because I felt like Lawler, that was his chance. Uh, but Kennedy really probably sealed the deal with a nice takedown with 30 seconds left, just grinded this one out. Very solid performance, and Tim Kennedy defeated Robbie Lawler via uh, unanimous decision. Both Kennedy and Lawler would be back in the first quarter of 2012 with Kennedy, who on the mic afterwards said that he wanted uh, the winner of Jacques Ray versus Luke Rockhold for the uh, the Strike Force Middleweight Championship, which I know that if there's one fight left in our Strike Force run that you're looking forward to, Josh, <laughs> that Jacques Ray Luke Rockhold fight. And Tim Kennedy was looking to uh, challenge the winner there. Uh, and then we would also see uh, Lawler would be back in the first part of uh, the first quarter of 2012 as well. Uh, I did. I do think it's worth mentioning, despite what you're, you're saying about Kenny, not that you're dogging him, but uh, the interview that I did with Tim in the archives of the show, he said that this fight with Lawler, like if you wanted to know, you know, who Tim Kennedy was as a fighter, this was the fight. So to watch was just his most kind of complete as a fighter, just very smart, you know, lots of grinding, lots of wrestling, you know, dropping strikes from the top and going for submissions where you could find him. It just, this was the Tim Kennedy style of fighting. If you like it, then you love this. If you didn't, then you didn't, you know, and and I can understand either way. Yeah, no, I don't mean to suggest that Tim Kennedy was overrated or, not a really good MMA fighter. I just mean that you could see that he didn't have great hands. I mean, I don't know how many people Tim Kennedy knocked out, but it was not a lot. He was a submission guy. He'd win on decision. And so sometimes when he was in there with somebody who he knew, like, 
there is no chance I'm going to trade with you, we would see this Kennedy. And yes, from a chess perspective, it's a brilliant performance. Um, but I think, as I mentioned before, and as we would see later on with him, he never had that X factor where you had to rise to the occasion to win against the top opponent. And it's because when you when you are so cerebral as a fighter, sometimes it's not enough. Sometimes you got to dig deep and, you know, pull out that, that Dan Henderson or that John Jones of, damn, I'm about to lose to Alexander Gustafsson and lose my title. What the hell do I need to do to win this last round? You know, that's what I mean about this. And, you know, it was it was a good fight. Um, you know, he won. It, this was clearly was not the best Robbie Lawler, though, by any means. Yeah, I, I, no, no doubt. This was definitely a a down performance for Law, for Lawler. No question. This was one of those one. This is why he had alternated wins and fights or wins and losses in his last six because sometimes we'd get a good one and one sometimes we get a bad one. You know, and that's just the, the way his career has been. And when he showed up and and was there mentally and got to get off, so to speak, and put it, you know his stuff out there, he won championships. You know, and when he didn't, he lost like this. So. All right, but this brings us to the co-main event, Marluz Kunin versus Misha Tate for the Strike Force Women's Bantamweight Championship. Uh, just Kunin, 19 and four coming in, I, just really looking good uh, coming into this fight. She was looking to make her second successful title defense here against Misha Tate. The two were supposed to fight earlier in the year, but a training camp injury to Tate had postponed the bout, so the champ instead submitted replacement Liz Carmouche in the fourth round of their title bout, which was a very entertaining bout in which Carmouche won probably about 80% of the fight. I mean, she was looking really, really good before she got caught in a submission. Tate was 11-2 and two coming in. This would be her first fight since winning a one-night tournament in Strikeforce on a Challengers card in the summer of 2010. She had won five straight, so Tate was clearly ready uh, clearly ready for the challenge. I, this, you know, I don't think she was much of an underdog, at least not in my book. Uh, but they, they two, these two did a lot of clinching early on. Neither really gained much of an advantage. Uh, Misha seemed intent on trying out her strikes for a bit before going for more clinches and finally a takedown. Kunin locked in a guillotine, but Tate was able to get out. Not really much to the first round. 10-9 Tate in my book. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of lay and pray. I thought, kind of thought yeah. Jake Shields, like, inhabited both of their bodies in this round. Because <laughs> yeah. it was just, like, it was, you know, if you're into that, it's like, wow, this is really high-level stuff here. But... It was really boring also. Uh, not not a good first round. Well, things turned around in the second for the champ. More clinching to open things up. Kunin was able to roll to the mat and took Tate with her. And then she worked for a rear naked choke, and she was really busy from that that kind of back position, but couldn't get it. And that was really pretty much the entire round. I, I put it as 10-9 for Kunin. It was definitely a rebound, uh, rebound round for her. I sort of felt I could have been 10 I mean, Conan was just dominating, but I guess she wasn't really doing enough damage, but it was definitely one-sided. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Tate really smartly timed a leg kick from Conan early on in the third round, secured a takedown in the process. Uh, once again, she wasn't really able to do much with it, and the ref stood things up with just over a minute and a half left. But then Tate was able to get another takedown, and uh, you know, as I was watching this, Conan really reminded me, made me think of Gegard Musassi and that she just could not stop takedowns but was dangerous with both striking and submissions. And uh, I guess it makes sense since they were teammates with golden glory, but, and they probably trained together, but yeah, it just, she couldn't stop the takedowns. And yes, you had to worry about her once you got her down, but another dominant round for, for Tate 10, nine, who was up two rounds to one in my book. And then in the fourth round, Tate got another takedown maneuver herself into position for an arm triangle choke. And she made some adjustments, 
uh, Kunin, who saw it coming. I mean, she did the telephone defense, like put her hand up to her you know, ear and tried to block with her bicep and her arm. And uh, she was trying to defend. She tried to, once it was in, she tried to kind of like roll her legs back as she had done with Liz Carmouche a lot and just was unable to do it. And she was forced to tap her nap and uh, Tate very jubilant celebrating and a very dejected Coonan was wearing the loss on her face very clearly. So the official result, Misha Tate defeated Marlis Coonan via submission come by way of arm triangle choke at 303 of the fourth round to win the Strikeforce Women's Bantamweight Championship. This was a really weird ending. Um, It looked like Coonan is going to win a decision or something. And then all of a sudden, I think Coonan just... I don't know. She 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 had been winning the fight so much in this position on the ground. She kind of fell asleep. She kind of had a mental lapse for a second there. And you could see Tate like totally capitalize on it and slap on the arm triangle. And man, that was crazy. Just like crazy ending. Conan tapping out. Um, I don't think that would ever happen again. Like I, it, I was, just it was the first time in her career at that point she had had I think it said nineteen and four so she'd had twenty three and they fight she'd never been tapped out before and yeah so yeah I, I I see what you're saying I I feel like Tate was fighting better than even though I feel like Conan had more uh, more weapons and yeah. was probably the better overall you know all around fighter uh, Tate was doing what she does I mean take down Tate she was taking her down and that and that's that she was doing what she was supposed to do. And there was a lot on this card, especially early on, but really all four of the first, you know, all four of these first fights, uh, these were got, these were fighters that seemed to be going for the win, you know, rather than the entertainment value, which I get that, but they weren't taking chances is my point. You know, you see Safadine that refused while he was, you know, just pinpoint accuracy with the strikes. He wasn't going to get into a firefight with Scott Smith, you know, second round or second fight, Tyron Woodley's not going to let Paul Daly have a chance at strikes, you know, third round, Tim Kennedy, same thing, not going to let Robbie Lawler get off on his feet. So we get that. And then this one, Tate, you know, is not going to stand there and trade a whole bunch with Coonan, who is a golden glory kickboxer. And, you know, instead just grabs grinds and clinches and all that stuff. And that's, that's what we saw when the force, the, the first four fights. So, uh, you know, it worked for wins, but maybe not so much working for gaining new fans and drawing ratings and that sort of thing. But regardless, you know t- in- yeah, go ahead. Sorry, you know what's interesting? I'm just thinking about now is Ronda Rousey and Marlos Conan never fought, did they? That's correct. That is correct. They were kind of did Ronda, did Ronda duck of, her? No, it was kind of end of kind of end of the era because so so the next I was just going to say that Tate would be back to defend her title against Ronda Rousey the following March. They had interviewed. Uh, uh, Sarah Kaufman on camera in between, I think the first and the second rounds and Kaufman was the former champ. She had lost the title uh, to Coonan and, and, but she had actually beaten Misha Tate. She was the last one to defeat Misha Tate. And she was saying she wanted to fight Coonan for the title, but she was guaranteed a, a title shot with, you know, with the, against the winner. And she wanted Coonan since she had lost to Coonan. She had already beaten Tate. Tate, of course, she wanted Kaufman next because she that was that was her last loss. So she wanted to be able to avenge that loss. Ronda Rousey wasn't even in the conversation as far as a title challenger at this point. Like I don't, I didn't hear her name mentioned at all on the broadcast. Um, I may have missed it, but I don't remember her being discussed at all. She was on the rise in her in her career. She was still a challenger, you know, a prospect at this point. And meanwhile, Coonan, she this was her last strike force fight. She would sign with Invicta after this. She would actually fight Chris Cyborg again in 2013, like 
glutton for punishment, up a weight class, and got destroyed again. I don't know why she would do that. Uh, she would later sign with Bellator. She retired at the age of 35 in 2017 with a 27 and 8 record. Um, she's not really talked about much today. You know, she's been eclipsed by Tate and Ronda Rousey, and you know, obviously, she would she had already been eclipsed by Cyborg. But as far as like the early rise of women's MMA, she's an important figure and really one of the best female fighters of all time that doesn't really get, you know, doesn't really get much, doesn't get the respect that she deserves, in my opinion. Oh yeah, she's truly a great. Um, it would have been interesting to see her take on Ronda. And this, I'm not going to go too deep here because I might be totally full of it, but I think I recall something where Kaufman never got her shot against Tate because Strikeforce was like, "Let's get Ronda Rousey in there right away" because Ronda was, you know, she was aesthetically pleasing and she was armbarring everybody, and they had to make. Kaufman wait until later to to get her shot and I think uh that I think that happened I don't know if you recall any of that but I remember well, Kaufman sort of feeling like hey that's not fair yeah she no I know that I know that she felt overlooked for sure and I'm looking at her her record right now so she actually would end up facing Alexis Davis who had won on the undercard of this match um she would face Davis in a rematch at Tate versus Rousey so it does look like Kaufman got passed over. And when we go to cover that card, obviously we will, you know, research and see what we can find out. Uh, but then Kaufman would challenge Rousey for the belt later in 2012. So she would get a title shot against Ronda Rousey. So she, you know, again, would, would get the opportunity, but you know, she, she, yeah, for whatever reason, um, despite having a really stellar record and having some big wins and that sort of thing, she just never really got the opportunity um yeah, just didn't get a lot of opportunity to be able to to, uh, yeah, she just didn't get a lot of opportunity. But to be fair, I mean, look, she's she's a former Invicta bantamweight champ, former Strikeforce bantamweight champ. I mean, she's twenty two and five as her record stands uh, today. As we record this, November twenty eighth, she actually just fought eight days ago uh, up in Canada. She uh, she beat Jesse Miel by TKO come by way of punches, which was her first fight in two years. So. You know, again, another one that doesn't get mentioned as far as being one of the greats, but um, she's for somebody that's been competing since 2006. You know, again, she beat uh, Alexa, Alexis Davis. Uh, she, she's beaten some. Uh, she beat Misha Tate, Misha as we Tate. mentioned. Yeah. She beat Shayna Baszler. She beat Ro Roxanne Modafari. She beat Liz Carmouche. Uh, you know, Leslie Smith. Uh, as again, as I'm, I'm kind of scrolling through, she's got some big wins on her record, and and just doesn't get the the respect that she you know that I think she deserves. Well, there you go, Phil. That's one of our shows, the the top ten women of Strike Force. I mean, that's a serious uh, statement. Uh, you know, she definitely belongs in sort of a women's Hall of Fame for sure. Uh, Sarah Kaufman's problem was she couldn't talk; like she had no yeah. charisma. And if I'm a promoter, I mean, that's awful to say, but I mean. You know, guys have the same problem. Anthony Smith, you know, cannot talk to save his life. Um, uh, and also Sarah Coffin. She's just so nice. She's like this nice Canadian woman. You know, it's like yeah. she's also a fighter. She didn't, you know, she did. I thought she did a pretty good job on, on her interview, you know, with within between the first and second rounds. Like I, I, she made a point of saying who she wanted to face and she kind of broke down the first round. I thought she did a pretty decent job, but. Yeah, she def definitely didn't have that it factor. And for what it's worth, I actually did invite her on the show um, when we for, before we launched. I invited her, and she she actually declined. So you know, she didn't even really want to talk about her run in Strikeforce. So 
uh, you know, she probably uh, remembered my last interview with her. Not good. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. But I yeah, mean, I never probably. interviewed her, so you would know more than I would. But but yeah, for whatever. Afro- whatever. Afromowitz had me on the Sarah Kaufman beat. I mean, I interviewed okay. her probably like four times. You know, follow, wrote about her stories. Of, you know, she her fights. Uh, she's a good fighter. She's just like really nice and quiet. Never like really much of a, you know. She certainly was not Ronda Rousey when it comes to you know s talking for sure. Ah, well, maybe maybe we'll have since you have the relationship, maybe we'll have you have you reach back out if we want to have her on. But uh, anyways, all right. Well, this brings us to the main event. We want to uh, quickly get to to this because this was you know the obviously the main crux of what we want to talk about. But heavyweight bout Dan Henderson taking on Fedor Emelianenko. Henderson was twenty seven and eight coming in twelve knockouts, two submissions. He had won five of his last six with his most recent win. Uh, garnering him the Strikeforce light heavyweight title uh, from Fajal Cavalcante. It's kind of crazy. You know, this is a guy that challenges for the middleweight title, wins the light heavyweight title, and then moves up to heavyweight, which he weighed in at 207 pounds, by the way. So this isn't like, obviously, like a true heavyweight. This is a guy that should have been cutting weight to 185 if he wanted to, but could win at 205, obviously, as well. Uh, Fedor 31 and three coming in eight KO 16 submissions. As we know, he had lost two straight to Fabricio Verdun and Bigfoot Silva. And as we mentioned earlier, this was the final fight on his strike force contract. So getting a big win here, um, was, you know, was going to be a big deal Although, Again, as we mentioned earlier with Zufa owning things and, you know, him getting a, a reported $1.5 million on a card that drew $640,000, and, you know, 570,000 viewers. I, I just, I don't think there was any way Zufa was going to give him that kind of money for him to stick around. So I, I, I think I think every if looking back now, it's pretty easy to see that this was going to be the final fight for him inside the hexagon, and it would be. But big cheers for both fighters. Uh, Josh, I don't know if you know this, but or knew this, but uh, we were educated, and I actually did a little bit of research on this. Um, this was the 36th career bout for both uh, Hendo and Fedor, which is pretty amazing. Both had competed in rings and won tournaments there. Both had competed in pride and won titles there. And neither fighter had actually had ever been knocked out before. So wow, pretty yeah. crazy to have all that in common, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't even want to talk about that. I'm going to sign off now. It's been good. <laughs> no, I yeah. need you. I need no, no, you. no. That's a coincidence. I mean, that's quite the coincidence for sure. Yeah, you pretty know. crazy. But yeah. Uh, and they both like to get after it right after right at the bell because they they went right at it. Fedor came in quickly, throwing some really heavy leather, got backed up by a left from Hendo that kind of seemed to wake him up and, and hurt his right eye. Uh, I believe he was cut already. Uh, the two continued to trade with Fedor grabbing a clinch and probably, you know, probably to recover, but he was already bleeding. Things stalled for a bit. Henderson was keeping Fedor clinched against the cage. Uh, after a separation, both fighters were looking to shoot their shot, so to speak. Fedor appeared to hurt Henderson with a punch with the former Olympian falling to his back. But man, he recovered really quickly and nicely reversed the position. I don't know what you, I don't know that you would call it like a specific move, but essentially Fedor was on top of Henderson, like raining down wild punches and Henderson kind of scooted to his left and got around to Fedor's back and kind of grabbed him in a riding, like amateur wrestling riding position, and then snuck in this right uppercut that just, I mean, blasted Fedor, dropped him face first to the mat. couple follow-up shots, which I want to point out, I think were to the back of the head based on the positioning of Fedor's head. He was facing away from Henderson, but Herb Dean stepped in and waved things off, and Gus Johnson just completely lost his mind. I mean, he just went insane with, they stopped the fly! 
right. I mean, he was screaming. <laughs> it was crazy. Uh, the official result, Dan Henderson defeated Fedor Emelianenko via TKO combo of punches at 412 of the first round. So now we get to kind of the controversy. I personally thought it was an early stoppage. And, yes, I am a Fedor mark. Yes, everybody knows that is you know my, <laughs> my guy. So there's a part of me the same way that I was with Bigfoot where I was like, you know, I felt like he could have kept going even though he couldn't see out of one eye. And, you know, with, with Verdun, it was like, oh, that was a fluke. Like, you know, this, to me, it felt like an early stoppage. Uh, you know, it, I watched the replay multiple times. I felt like Fedor, I felt like he was out and maybe the follow-up punches woke him up, but he had turned to his back. He was kicking at Hendo as Herb Dean was, you know, like stepping in. Like, I, I just, I felt like he could have let Fedor you know, fight out of that a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, Josh, you know, we're, I'm going to, we're going to get back to it, but Josh, what, what did you think about this? Well, I mean, it, it kind of points to the subjectivity you have in MMA fighting. I don't know if you ever saw the Tyson Fury, Anthony Wilder fight where he knocked Tyson Fury out cold. Oh, the, you're talking about the undertaker one. Yeah. And he yeah, got up was, at yeah, like yeah. eight. And it wasn't, no, you're uh, by the way, it was, uh, um, Deontay Wilder, not Deontay. Anthony Joshua, right. Deontay Wilder, but yeah, Sorry. Okay. uh, yes, I did. Yeah. Yes, I did see that. So, you know, and that, I mean, Herb Dean would have stopped that fight three times, you know, in those eight <laughs> yeah. seconds. Right. So I sort of feel like, uh, Fedor got robbed here. Uh, I didn't like this fight. I didn't like this stoppage. The problem was that Fedor obviously hurt Henderson. He dropped him. He jumped on him. And somehow Hendo got his right hand open from the side. He got his right hand loose and he nailed him. Sadly, Fedor went flat out on his stomach. It looked really bad. It looked really bad. It looks like, shoot, this guy is out. And, um, but surprisingly he rolled over and he was like, like kicking, you know, he was, he was back. And so I sort of feel like Herb Dean just kind of, I don't know. You know, sometimes there's a, a propensity to protect the legend and, and Fedor is one of those guys. Like we never want him to be too embarrassed inside there. And so maybe that was playing, playing part into it. But I, I have to say that, 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 um, Fedor and his fighting style is just so amazing because this guy's fighting Dan Henderson and Dan Henderson at this age there's only one way Dan Henderson can beat you, which is knocking you out. If he, if Dan Henderson were fighting Tim Kennedy on this night, Tim Kennedy would have wrestled him and had him on his back and taken his chances that way. But not Fedor. Fedor never attempted to win strategically. Fedor said, hey, I'm a man of faith. I'm a man of God. I fear no man. Let's settle this man to man. And when you fight like that, sometimes... <laughs> This is the outcome, but I would have let it go. I would not have stopped this fight this early. Yeah, I was not a fan of the stoppage then, and I'm not a fan of the stoppage now. Uh, conversely, Mauro Ronaldo approved of the stoppage. He made a point of saying after the official announcement and the in-cage interviews that uh, he, you know, yeah, he said Fedor was out. You know, I, I have no issues with, issue with the stoppage. Uh, neither Frank nor Gus weighed in on that, but Fedor did not agree with it, which this was crazy. I did not remember this part at all. Um, I, I, I did not remember Fedor actually saying this, but, you know, Fedor, to your point, man of faith, man of God, always said that, you know, whatever the outcome, that's the will of God, that sort of thing. Uh, apparently he was disagreeing with God on this one because he said, quote, I think the stoppage was early. 
I don't want to say anything bad about the referee or anything, but it seems to me it was early. I was clearly hit, but I wasn't hit flush directly, which by the way, the crowd was booing um, at this point. But I think I could have continued, but the referee chose to stop the fight. So I, you know, I, I think it was early. Fedor thought it was early. Um, You know, a lot of fighters when they get stopped, they, you know, a lot of times we'll say they thought it was early, but in this, this case, I really thought that it was uh, an early stoppage. And ironically, now Herb Dean is known for letting fights go too long. And there's like memes and stuff out there of like guys getting murdered and Herb being like, hey, you know, you still in it type thing. (laughs) Um, You know, so it's kind of reversed. But uh, I did want to point out before the fight, Dana apparently uh, reportedly told Fedor, dude, you're fighting a 185 pounder. So he couldn't help but, you know, take a shot at that. And then. Things wouldn't get much better for The Last Emperor from Dana. After that, as Dana tweeted, quote, Michael Jordan of MMA, dumbest thing ever said, so stupid. Uh, So smug and smirking, as always, Dana loved seeing the fall of Fedor, and I'm sure he was happy that he wasn't re-signed, you know? Well, yeah. Let me just say something there. Uh, He is fighting a 185-pounder. He is. But but it is Dan Henderson. But it is Dan Henderson. This is not your normal 185-pounder by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, and Dana White is, I mean, for for even those who are UFC marks and who love everything Dana White has ever done, um, this is a stupid comment for him to make. I mean, there's no legitimate MMA fan or journalist or whatever who actually believes that Fedor sucks as much as Dana White says he does. I mean, it's just nonsense, and it just makes Dana White look like an idiot. It's, I mean, there's just... He loses so much credibility when he says this. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. But uh, unfortunately, this would be it for both fighters in Strikeforce. We mentioned Fedor earlier that this was likely going to be it, but but Hendo would be done too. And in the cage, he said he wanted to defend that light heavyweight title, but he would continue the run of Strikeforce light heavyweight champions that would not defend the title for, or that basically would, would, would never successfully defend the title. The other guys all lost the belt, but he would actually relinquish it and move over to the UFC. His next bout took place at UFC 139 in San Jose against Shogun Hua in one of the greatest fights of all time. They actually just celebrated the 10-year anniversary for this fight. I was there cage side for that, and it was it was amazing. That was such an incredible fight. It was one of those ones where I didn't care who won. It went to a decision. I wasn't sure who won, uh, but I just knew that I had just watched Magic, and it was it was incredible. Uh, so as yeah, as we record this almost exactly 10 years ago, uh, Hendo continued to compete in the UFC until 2016 uh, with big wins. Another he got another win over Shogun in a second bout. That one was more decisive, got a TKO win. And then Hector Lombard, he beat him in another one before wrapping things up. Uh, the former Olympian and pride and strike force title holder retired with a 32 and 15 record. Truly one of the all time greats, one of the, the most fun fighters to watch and a guy that just all American man just did it over and over again. Uh, Fedor, he actually remained under contract with Showtime. He was uh, while he was he was still going to move on with Showtime and M1 would do some events with the uh, with, with that channel. He was done inside the hexagon. He would move around to various promotions. Excuse me for several years before debuting for Bellator in 2017. Actually, interesting to note, he's gone nine and two since this loss to Henderson. Uh, those, to be fair, some of his comp- competition has been less than stellar. Uh, all of his Bellator fights have been exciting. None have gone into the second round. He currently sits at 40-6 and six and is coming off a vintage win over f- former Bellator title challenger Tim Johnson. Uh, now Scott Coker and Bellator are plan- planning a retirement fight for him, which will 
supposedly be against a much bigger name than Tim Johnson, which I'm I'm hoping for a guy like Alistair, or I would really love to see a rematch with Verdun. That is like that's probably the one that I would want to see the most, but they've also talked about Junior Dos Santos. Wouldn't it be incredible if it was Brock Lesnar? I mean, what if like <laughs> they you know, they do the uh, they do the the um press conference to announce it and you hear and then here comes Brock Lesnar kicking the door open with Paul Heyman in tow with the the heavyweight the the WWE you know universal championship over his shoulder and, and oh my god I would just just take my money just take my money I will fly wherever it is oh and then I think it's supposed to be in Russia even though they just did this last one in Russia although I can't remember if they said no, that he wants to do one more in the in the US, but dude, can you imagine if it's Brock and it's in Russia and Brock <laughs> just does the Rocky Four training, you know, it, it goes yeah. over there and oh man, I would just I would absolutely love it. But don't regard- let Vince don't let Vince McMahon have a hand in promoting it Oh he would. Oh I guarantee you it would be a crazy. Fedor would become thing. like, you know, the evil nineteen eighties Cold really, War Russian. <laughs> oh man. Uh that would be amazing. But I, I whoever he fights, I'm gonna make sure to tune in. Um I again I hope it's a big name guy because I really I do not want to see him going out fighting some guy that I've, you know, barely heard of. All right, well, let's wrap things up. No fighters pop for drugs of abuse or performance enhancers after this event. There was no uh, no payroll uh, publicly disclosed, but as we mentioned, Fedor was reported to receive $1.5 million, while Dan Henderson got 800000 As mentioned earlier, the event drew 571,000 viewers on Showtime, and MMA Weekly pointed out that $2.3 million for just the two main event fighters was, quote, well above what the UFC pays its entire fighter payroll, not including bonuses or other contractual stipulations for most pay-per-view events. So while Fedor versus Henderson drew decent ratings, uh, you know, did it justify a payroll? The gate, the live gate, as we mentioned, was around $640,000. So Henderson ecl- eclipsed the gate by himself. Never mind Fedor. So in a word, no, it did not justify that type of payroll. And you can't do business that way. And there's no way that they were going to bring Fedor back for that kind of money with the type of ratings and crowds that he was drawing at that point. But overall, you know, I thought the event was, was, was entertaining for the most part, especially, you know, the main event was of course the, the main deal there, but we got a little bit of everything. We got some submissions. We got some, uh, you know, fights that went the full distance. We got some blood, we got some knockouts. It it was, you know, I, I enjoyed the card for the most part, despite my favorite losing in the main event. But Josh, what did you think? Yeah, I agree with you. I thought it was a really good show. Uh, some of the fights were great. Uh, we had some big names. Uh, what a moment for Misha Tate. This was sort of the birth of her star, and uh, it changed her destiny forever. I mean, she she wins the title. She upsets Marlis Conan. I mean, even Sarah Kaufman at ringside, as you mentioned, she thinks Misha's going to lose to Conan. She's kind of riding her off a little bit. And, of course, Misha would go on to be world champion in Strike Force and UFC, and uh, big, big night for her. Um, Safadine made people care, made people notice. It was a good showing by him. Uh, Tyron Woodley, he got an important win. It was not like a, exciting, but it was important. And then Kennedy, Tim Kennedy too. He had a, it was not exciting, but he he showed, hey, I'm a smart fighter, and I beat this guy who could knock anybody out with one punch. And even though um, I didn't like how Fedor lost, I thought it was an early stoppage. You know, it was 
big deal for Dan Henderson to, to go out there and knock out the great Fedor, who's regarded as, you know, the GOAT, at least in the heavyweight division. So I think it was a good show and a lot to a lot happened. A lot of news happened on this show. Well, this uh, coming up soon, I, I want to wrap things up again as, as we go here. We're still working on our next episode. I've actually reached out to Misha Tate um, to see if she'd be interested in coming on the show. I haven't heard back from her yet, but uh, if she responds and says yes, I'm going to look to interview her this week, and, and hopefully she will agree and we'll get her on the show. If not, uh, it'll probably be myself and Josh talking through uh, some sort of topic of some kind. Maybe we'll talk about challengers or something like that. But the next event card is is pretty action-packed. I'm looking forward uh, to this one. Check this out. To, to, let me just spout off a few of the names. Amanda Nunez, Mike Kyle, Cyborg Santos, Yoel Romero, and, and, and uh, Feijao Cavalcante. And that's the preliminary card, by the way. That's that's not even the main card. On so there's a there's a a fight on the main card that the first one I'm going to mention is like, okay, you should absolutely have traded this one out for uh, one of these undercard bouts. But Pat Healy uh, taking on Maximo Blanco. So as we're doing this on the fly, I may switch those out, and we may just watch Fajal versus Romero and mm -hmm. and put that in as the opening bout because that's that's yeah uh which by the way that preliminary card was streamed on on HDNet so they probably wanted to have a, a pretty good card uh for the undercard but we'd also sing uh see King King Mo take on Hodger Gracie uh Daniel Cormier would step in it was supposed to be Alistair Overing tipping taking on Bigfoot Silva but instead it would be DC stepping in as uh, Alistair was injured. Josh Barnett would take on Surya Heritanov. Uh, and then we would see in the main event, Luke Rockwell hold would challenge Jacare Souza for the middleweight championship in a bout that I'm going to probably have nothing to say and just let Josh talk. But uh, hey, I think you mean the Luke Rockhold. The, yeah. There I, I remember that fight real quickly. I've never they, seen it. By the way, I've never seen it. So I'm not going to spoil it for you. Okay. But I mean, I know what I, happens, but okay. I've never seen it. <laughs> I just, I just remember being, terrified that that um luke rockhold was gonna get submitted like I, it was one of those fights i'm like oh my god there's no way he's gonna win this fight so that's all i'll say okay <laughs> well i'm looking forward to covering that we went a little long on this one because there was a lot to cover but we appreciate you uh tuning in again you can find us on twitter and on instagram at the hexagon pod uh you can also f reach me at fill it inside the hexagon.com would love to hear from you get your thoughts, get your ideas. And, and I've been asking a while, but if you would take the time to rate or re and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be awesome. We haven't had any new ratings in a while, so it would be awesome to to see that. But again, we appreciate all the support. Josh, appreciate your time. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. We hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy. We will see you soon. Infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't come that on. bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network.